Hey, I'm Gary David. Hey, and I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, and as we find ourselves living in what has been called the age of experience, it can be easy to forget that experience design of, of any kind is really about people. You know, and more than that, it's not about making experiences just not better, but it's also about making lives better for the people that are experiencing these experiences. So as designers across the experience space in whatever corners of the experience world that we might be working in, we can help in ways great and small. Now, it can be an overused phrase to be a customer or a patient or user-centric. And I'm just, yeah, that's something that we see, I think, far too much. <laughs> um, and this can also mean that we lose sight kind of, of what, what it means to be patient-centric or you know, user-centric in essence. And this can also then filter into our design recommendations and decisions and just kind of learning and honestly forgetting what this means for people's lives. So uh, Eleni Stathunis joins us on the podcast today, and she's focused on delivering basically this kind of difference of how do we focus back on people and bring the people back into the design through her work. She's a principal in design at MadPow, which is a New England-based firm that creates innovative experiences and solutions that benefit people and businesses. She's worked with clients across a variety of business sectors and industries, but always with the same goal, to help bring the voices of people back into the design process in order to do good. We talk with Eleni about her path to her current position and, and what has driven her in terms of her passion, her focus, and her larger goals. From her education as a graphic designer and also a communications minor, she has integrated both to better relate findings to clients. And as we know, those of us who do qualitative research, really distilling the essence of our work to a broader audience can be one of the chief challenges to drive that mission of bringing people's voices back in. She also looks at designing like problem solving, exploring the flow of humanity, of people, all the elements that come together when doing design, what the needs of the people are, how they might converge and diverge, and also considering the context in which the design is being developed for and ultimately will be delivered. She talks about how qualitative research is a key part of this process in linking what clients think they need what they think they need, with also what this qualitative data reveals. The insights provided by the qualitative data allow her and the folks at MadPow to link those findings with the larger quantitative data sets that companies typically possess and often have the most confidence in and are driven by. We talk about how keeping the goals of the project in mind, what the client says they want and what the data shows they need, and how the needs of the people at the center of it all can deliver designs that matter and designs that ultimately can create change. We had a great visit with Eleni and we hope you enjoy the chat. Yeah, I, I think the first burning, I, I was doing a little bit of research on you and the first burning question I have is, what distance did you actually run in college? Because I oh, see you have a, funny. a bit of track because I'm a runner. I was actually <laughs> just at the BAA today for a meeting. And so no I'm a way. runner. I was looking at your LinkedIn. I was like, oh, you know, track and cross country, a dangerous yeah. combination, possibly yeah. middle distance. Wasn't quite sure. So that's the first thing I had to ask is what was your distance? Running <laughs> yeah. In so I did the 400 meters and the 200 meters also did the, um, Sometimes we do the four by 100 relay, four by 200 relay. Um, and I did cross country to stay in shape for indoor season, <laughs> for yeah. the track season that and is outdoor season. Very <laughs> uncommon, as you know, to talk to someone who runs the 200 and says, you know what I want to do? I'm going to throw in a little cross country just to stay yeah. in shape. <laughs> It was my it was my coach's idea because, um, as you know, people who do track and field and run, they usually just do all three. They'll do like they are just avid runners. Right. Um, and I started out with indoor, and then I I was like, I'm going to do outdoor too, and then you know 
people who were doing indoor outdoor were also doing cross country. And my coach was like, you know, you should also do cross country. If you're not doing any other sport, you should give it a shot. And, um, and I did it just to sort of, you know, maintain and then, you know, jump into, into, uh, the season later on. You must've been fantastic at the start of the race. Oh my God. Well, how funny. Yes. I, so I have a funny story about that because there was this one time my coach would actually use me as what she called the rabbit. <laughs> so she was like, this is what I want you to do. I just want you to run as fast as you can. It's going to mess with everybody else. Our team will know they're staying back and you just like stop quarter mile in whatever you run your quarter mile, just like be done with it. And then just jog, you know, kind of jog your way through the, to the end. And so, um, I remember that happened at least once. So that was, that was interesting, but I, I didn't mind. It was like all the same people I ran with during indoor and outdoors. It was, it was fun. Did it work? Uh, yeah, it kind of worked. <laughs> <laughs> we got one shot at this because after this one time, everyone's going to know. So let's make this count. Yeah. Let's make this count. Lady but, go. I'd like to win for 400 meters. And then yeah. whatever you do after that is totally fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. <laughs> I mean, are you still involved in running at all? Um, you know, not as much as I would like to. Occasionally, I'll like, you know, put a 5K on the calendar and be like, I'm doing that so I can, you know, get into it. But I haven't been as as active as I would like. So I'm I'm walking a lot more, doing a lot more hiking, kind of a little slower pace stuff to keep myself moving, but um, have not maintained a, a fast paced running <laughs> uh, side career. <laughs> That's usually the way, right? As we get, as we age, as we get older, we just run longer and slower. Longer and slower. It's like, I can't run as, I can't, the 5Ks are out. Um, and I really don't want to look at my times. So, you know, what would be nice, a trail. A trail. There's nothing wrong with the trail. Also, nothing I would like to say, uh, you know, maybe also getting older, but also different responsibilities, right? So I have mm. children as well. And it's like your time just starts getting spread across like multiple areas and right. other people's activities in addition to what you want. So right. there's, there's that. <laughs> you know, you talk about, you know, coming out of college. One of the things that was really interesting, and I've always wondered about this. So, you know, we talked about I teach in a UX program at my Bentley mm -hmm. University, but I'm not trained in it. I'm a sociologist by training, studying technology in the workplace, and I just happen to do this other thing. But it kind of feels like that's not the pathways through which people arrive at this field of user experience and or experience design is pretty interesting because mm -hmm. it's like this melange of backgrounds that all are yeah. tossed together in this moderately amorphous professional field mm -hmm. in which people got to figure out how to bring their skill sets together. And so you came to it through creative mm -hmm. uh, design, right? Yeah. So I was a graphic design in college, minored in communication. But when I left school, I, I right away went into the digital space. Although at okay. the time I'm, I'm aging myself, but they were teaching primarily print. <laughs> right. So as I was coming out, so was sort of the inception of this world in terms of careers in the digital space. Um, and so I stayed within that and just kind of moved my way from, you know, junior designer to creative director type positions, but always loved the digital space, the user experience piece of it. The fact that there's, you know, you're designing something where another human is going to be on the other end and you're not going to be there to explain how to use this thing. And so you have right. to think through like, what do they need to know? Does it make sense? Is it overwhelming? You know, whatever it is. And so that just went in from you know, uh, user experience UI into creative direction, but then moving into more of like those discovery conversations, sitting down and, and having conversations with people early on in the process from a strategy and business standpoint too. So sort of a, sort of a, a mix and felt like a natural progression from there. I'm curious too, like in, in terms of if we think with like a, a, a visual background is, is kind of how you got started in the space and then kind of moved into, into more of a strategy role. Yeah. You know, how much does, uh, do you find like the sort of visual thinking, what, what kind of role does that play as you move into strategies? Is it still a visual form of thinking or do we yeah. kind of move into other metaphors or how do we think about this? I mean, I'm, I'm a vis very visual learner. I always have been. So there's so much of that because when you're presenting back to a client, when you're presenting the work, it's not just the visual part, but like, how do you tell the story? How do you explain what it is that you're, you have in front of you? So thinking about those things along the way. Um, 
And from a visual standpoint too, it's, uh, you have to make people come along with you (laughs) along the ride. So when you get down into like more of the weeds of things of like, you're doing wireframes or a flow, and then you're doing, um, you're applying visual design to something, kind of bringing people along with you. And then when it comes to strategy, um, definitely, I mean, I even think just like recently us presenting some work back to the client, um, even when we do research to think about, is there a visual way we can present this information back mm. um, that might make more sense to people? Because always right. the feedback is, you know, we're typically presenting back to um leadership executive type Mm -hmm. roles and we're always hearing like hey it needs to be summarized it needs to be a little bit more condensed you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so you're like how can I condense this instead of just words what else can I put in front of people to help them understand what we're talking about and to break things up so you're not like looking at this monotonous thing right (laughs) it's always tricky isn't it I mean I I developed like a two-day qualitative data analysis workshop um, because it's always interesting to me that a lot of programs, and I don't know in your experience when you're hiring people, bringing them into MadPow, they, they have a lot of experience in collecting data. Mm-hmm. Then in terms of like, what do I do with it now? The analyzing yeah. part <laughs> tends yeah. to be a whole other factor. And then not just analyzing yeah. it, but then presenting it. So a lot of programs, mine included, tend to be heavy on the data collection Mm-hmm. The data analysis and presentation tends to fall off a bit. So do you, do you, have you found that in terms of, you know, your career and bringing people in and getting them up to speed and engaging with these projects that there's this kind of fall off in that part of the research chain? Um, not necessarily with the people that I work with at MadPow. We do a lot of qualitative research. So right. a lot of it is about then kind of presenting back those insights we heard, what are those themes, what are those main stories, how do we want to tell that story. So I think people are pretty versed in in sort of that way and, and also interested in finding out other ways to sort of, you know, bring some of those uh, points home a little bit more. Um, I think sometimes it's more, um, it can be from the client perspective to sort of bring them along and thinking about how can we best bring them along to, to what we found. And sometimes it's aligned with what they're thinking it, the outcome was going to be. Right. And sometimes it's not. And um, you have to find a way to do that. But a lot of the stuff that we do too, in terms of like taking that data and then turning it into a journey map, for example, it just takes it and it manifests it into some sort of visual that at least people can start seeing and better understanding as well. So there's some of that as well, that as far as artifacts are concerned, tie into that um, deliverable. I really appreciate really quickly. I really appreciate the fact that, you know, the presenting back and not aligning with what they expected. One of the things that it was in a book that I read from Scandinavia about design at work and it, you know, all design projects are political in nature, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether they're intentionally political. <laughs> Very in Scandinavian nature, idea. Very Scandinavian idea. Right. I mean, it's all political. And you're going to, you know, you're going to deal with the politics of the room. You're going to deal with people deferring to certain individuals in the room. You have to moderate, but at the same time, you have to moderate the delivery, but at the same time, you want to deliver what you found. Mm-hmm. You want to be authentic to the process, but at the same time, they're clients and they have expectations and there's pet projects people want to see done. And without, if you want to name specific clients, by all <laughs> means do, but I'm just curious in projects or research that you've done, you know, how have you managed that? How is this manifested? And, you know, how do you, I mean, I, I don't know that this is taught in design programs, but how do people get brought along to that reality of, you know, these, you're dealing with people, we're dealing with organizations, there's politics, and these are things we have to consider in how we present and deliver findings. Yeah, um, I feel like that's always been a constant. And I think when you're early on in your career, you know, I can think of myself thinking, you know, like, you feel like you're just going to like take over the world, right? And then you have, you end up going into these meetings and you're like, wait a second, this isn't exactly the way I envisioned it was going to be. So more from that perspective of like, like you said, you are dealing with other humans. There's a dynamic. It's not a one-way street, right? It's you're communicating and there's this dance and it's back and forth and you have to figure that out. So there's always that, you know, those politics at the end of the day, you know, I always say it's like, well, 
people hire us for a reason, right? So they hired us to do X, Y, Z. Sometimes people might think there's a magic bullet to everything. And really there isn't at the end of the day, you do the research and you're like, you know, it's this, this, and this, or, you know, it's not the one thing that you thought. Um, So our job and my job, I feel very strongly about is like, I will always present what we found from the research. Um, And then it's a matter of like, you know, us presenting it to who it needs to be presented, what the organization does with that information is what they need to do with it. Um, but from my perspective, it's, it, it is always presenting that work. However, yes, th- those things that you mentioned are all true. <laughs> um, and sometimes it just comes down to like, you know, very nuanced little word changes that, you right. know, help, help people, you know, tell that story a little bit better, but does not, um, mess with the integrity of the work in any way. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes me think that there's always this kind of interplay or tension between providing understanding through findings and and the way that we present data, but then also elements of persuasion as part of that, both in terms of helping somebody along with the journey. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, this interplay, I I think it's a great point, Gary, too, that you brought up in terms of when we're in this politics space, and and I appreciate it, Eleni, how you show this, you know, I, I think bring up the key idea too, that like the goal is to present the data that is found, you know, mm-hmm. and, and do a way that that is like, um, you know, that is honoring the integrity of, of the work itself. Um, and then this interesting kind of interplay in terms of then how do we, do we help people along in that journey? So you, you mentioned journey maps as one of the elements too. So I'm, I'm curious if just um, to kind of paint some pictures in, in our listeners' minds in terms of what are some of the other kind of visual elements that you might bring um, when we're kind of presenting some findings, you know, so or, or maybe some elements that are part of a journey map. I mean, do we see emojis pop up, for example? Um, you know, are we using certain kinds of colors? You know, what, what kind of visual pieces might we think of in terms of helping tell a story? Especially, I love this idea too, because it's something that I think we all face as well as when we tell stories to leadership, they have to be shorter, they have to be more visual, they have yeah. to be one bullet point, you know, one line, you know, yeah. that's, that's one of the biggest challenges we face, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we do, um, and I know um, other, other uh, designers on, you know, strategy projects have done this when they have to present concepts. Um, and one thing that we did recently for a project is like creating sketches around your concepts. So okay. Mm-hmm. Sketches, <laughs> like nice. illustrations, you know, so we have somebody, you know, who, you know, is focused on illustration, a couple of people who do that, but then also just being able to find ways to illustrate that visually. Um, right. So as you mentioned, it's not necessarily emojis, but it's, if we're talking about, um, we want to sketch the scenario where somebody's at the doctor's office and we don't want to stock imagery, but we just want that to be able to tell the story. We can illustrate it in that way. So we can um, get to that a little bit quicker and it feels a little bit more impactful than reading a bunch of words on a screen so that um, those kinds of things can be very helpful. Um, We did that recently too, with just um, illustrating some of our findings in terms of the member journey to have people understand, for example, um, uh, I can't say specifically, but we wanted to show, hey, people are living their lives. They're not always thinking about X, Y, Z, right? So just illustrating that, finding a way to draw that out so that it is it is literally on the page and somebody can understand it along with your voiceover or just you know a sentence or two just to be able mm-hmm. to get to that point. I always tell my students when all else fails, word cloud. Word cloud. <laughs> Just do a word cloud. They're like, word wow. Cloud. I'm like, you know what? People, it's like a Rorschach test. It's like people will see in it. That becomes like data, right? You show them yeah. a word cloud and they're like, oh, that's amazing. That part. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And it becomes almost an analytical exercise yeah. to get people to think aloud what it is that they're prompted or primed to find meaningful and relevant. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like word cloud. Just dump it. I did that once for a project I was doing for, you know, just a personal project and I didn't have time to analyze stuff really. And I just dumped into a word cloud and they were good. They went, that's the most amazing thing we ever saw. And I said, <laughs> yes, it is. And that's why I have a PhD. Because I found the website where I could dump all the uh, open-ended responses in and create this word cloud. Oh my goodness! (laughs) Yeah, so lots of word clouds. No, I like the sketching idea too. And you know, it's 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 an interesting opportunity space as we see these areas coalesce between design, illustration, Mm -hmm. uh, programming. Uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is. You know, I was I was working with a client and I was using something called um, Toonly. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Toonly, mm-hmm. like creating like cartoons 
through okay, like yeah. this, you know, this web-based service yeah. to, to try to get people to pay attention because their attention spans are woefully um, inadequate to actually engage with words yeah. in a, mm. you know, ongoing way. It's like, I, it's two pages. I can't read that. I'm like, oh, all right. So how do we do that then? Here's and a cartoon. Use a cartoon. <laughs> here's, a cartoon. <laughs> here's a cartoon, right? Or here's a word cloud or here's anything, you, or sketch, you know, yeah. in some kind of way, because it is a challenge with the qualitative work is if it's, you know, text-based often, how yeah. do we then get people to pay attention to the text? And, you know, do we overlay video on top of that? Do we do audio on top of that? Do we do stop action on top of that? You know, you know, clay animation, anything to get people to resonate with whatever message we're trying to deliver to them, which becomes important to their success. Yeah. I think the other thing though, too, is um, I know, you know, something that you said made me stop and think about this. It's not necessarily that we're dumbing down the content either by making it visual, um, just in general. And I think just being a visual person, I'm sensitive to that because it has to do with like how much, (laughs) what is your cognitive load that you're carrying right now? And how much can you take at this very moment? How much can you look at at this very moment? And so if you're presenting and you're reading, you know, you might have some slides on there. You might have some bullets. You're re- you're saying something that's different than the, what's on the bullets. The person who's looking at your slides is reading the slides. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just like thinking about that. Um, and there's just something that has stuck with me as I was, you know, looking into visual design and brand identity is that we usually, our brain from a cognitive standpoint is going to look at color first, then shape, and then figure out how they, to decipher that shape, to actually read it. So it's just thinking about that too, in terms of, you know, what are we putting in front of people and what will, what will they be able to consume as you're presenting, if you're presenting versus if they're in a mode of like, I'm actually going to sit and read this book. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. I I really appreciate that too, because it's, I think some of the the most interesting elements of um, visual design, like when I was, when I was learning about user experience design and um, kind of getting up to, up to speed over, over the past seven years around the space, um, you know, early on, I was really enthralled by like the, the gestalt psychology and gestalt elements of design. Like what are the, what are the kinds of visual cues that our brains go to naturally? How do we naturally group? visual elements that we see on a page, whether it is text or, or images and how do we build associations. And so basically what is like the, some of the underlying architecture of how we, we process, you know, visual, visual elements. And so I, I love this idea too, in terms of just thinking about, um, I mean, only, honestly, it's like audience design, right? It's like audience experience, yeah. AX, we might call it right. In terms of what's their cognitive load <laughs> and are they looking at my shirt or are they looking at, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> there's too many shapes and colors on my shirt, you know, right. or is it <laughs> looking at the reading the slide, but I think they're, you know, I'm also speaking. So that is a great point um, that Gary and I often talk about the, um, the, the massive need to um, um, upgrade presentation design by most, by most, uh, most academics um, in terms of. (laughs) It's absolutely horrible. It's like academics do violence to their, to their data. And, make, and it's actually violence to yeah. the audience by the way in which they construct their slides. Um, and then, uh, then not only construct their slides in that particular kind of way, but then proceed to read them. Yeah. Yes. Which is always fun. So we get the, yeah. we get, we get the double whammy of the slides horrible. And then what you do with it, aug, you know, augments that horribleness to create like an horribleness squared <laughs> or an infinite loop of horribleness. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yes. there's definitely the, um, there's a presentation mode and then there's the mode where you pass off to say, if you want more information, read this. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Click here, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Read my equally boring paper with <laughs> yeah. also horrible visuals. That's indecipherable. And it's got word clouds though. You got a word cloud, that's right. Rather than having good. like a 6,000 page document, if you just boil it down to a word cloud, academia <laughs> might have bigger impact. I'm just putting that's it out good, there. Yeah. Yeah. We have to lose at this point. <laughs> might as well. No one's listening to us anyway. Might as well oh. put it in a word cloud or a cartoon. See what happens. <laughs> What can you lose? You know, what can you lose? Um, one, one thing else that that um, Gary and I were talking ahead of time in in terms of like one of the questions that we're really curious about um, to think with you is is to, 
today, what does it mean to do design? You know, so it's like we're working at Mad Pow and we're, you know, you know, you're kind of talking about visual elements in this case and thinking about like audience experience and presentation design too. But one of the other things is like, there's been such an explosion of user experience design into just the world in terms of yeah. uh, it's a, it's a common like language that we, we all are at least somewhat aware of mm-hmm. more frequently now. So um, just kind of curious your thoughts in terms of like, what is it, what does it mean to do design today? You know, given that everybody in so much, so much is about design, right? We we're, it's, it's a much more common frame of reference, even though people are not designers necessarily designers are, but you know, yeah. what, what does that look like to you in, in that case, in terms of what does it mean to do design today? Um, what does it mean to do design? Um, to me, as let's see how I can word this. I so just to take a step back, I've always looked at every like design is everywhere. Like I always mm-hmm. have looked at things in that lens, right? Even from the perspective of like you're walking through a door and you're like, why, why didn't I know that I needed to like pull that door and not push right. that door mm-hmm. or like just like silly things like that, right? That people take for granted and they're like, uh, duh. And I'm like, no, it's not duh. It's just <laughs> right. it wasn't designed right. right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard way to go through life, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm around people. I notice these things and they're like, why are you getting so angry? I'm like, well, why, why, why aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Is it a push or pull? I don't know. Angry I can't this. see. Yeah. Why am I the only one angry about this right now? Why aren't you angry? We should all be irate because of how badly this designed, this is designed, which is now making my life at this moment more difficult. And frankly, I don't need that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um, so just thinking about it, that it's everywhere. And I like different aspects of design, not just UX, but just, um, I also do pottery on the side as like okay. a hobby. Um, so things like that, I like to draw. Um, I like interior design, just like any elements from, from that world. Um, so I think it's just, for me, though, it's like solving problems. I like solving problems. So what is it that we're trying to figure out? Um, and you know, starting out as a UX UI designer and thinking about a product and thinking about a flow, what would make sense for somebody to use. Um, that's more kind of the tangible reality of that. And then as we move into service design, it, it feels like bigger. And I, I guess in some ways, like I love it even more because it's a little bit more about the service aspect of it. And so how can we solve not just like product related items, but um, something is wrong with the customer service of some right. organization, for example. Mm. So how do we go ahead and, and solve that for them? Who are the parties that are involved? And then researching and speaking to everybody that's involved in figuring out how do we make a better experience? Um, things like that. Um, so it's about, you know, how do we get to a solution, basically. But also this collaboration aspect of it, this sort of co-designing part of it, of like you're in service to somebody else about, you know, you're trying to help them figure out how to, um, how to get to a better place and um, designing with them, right? To figure out the, the solutions along the way. One of the things I, 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 I'm fascinated about because I float between like user experience people and then I go over to the customer experience professionals and then I'm around employee experience professionals and I might be around learning experience professionals. And it's interesting to see how the commonalities and also the differences. And one of the things that I, I know a lot of people have been wrestling with is, um, is like, what is experience design? Is it, you know, the way I think about it, just put myself out there is it's a more of a generalist, like a general practitioner, which encapsulates a lot, all of these areas. And then in which you might have UX or CX or EX or LX or, you know, Mm -hmm. PX or whatever X, you know, audience Mm -hmm. experience, member experience, or, you know, you talk to some people in UX are like, well, UX is everything is UX but just as like a different name. Then you talk to the CX people, they're like, yeah, user experience is just customer experience. And so you get like into these, these almost yeah. semantical turf battles. And I'm curious yeah. at Mad Pow, how you all, you know, think about what is experience design as distinct from UX or similar to it and how you think about incorporating like customer experience into service design, you know, as, yeah. as a feature. Yeah. So the way that we look at it is as far as we have the umbrella of experience design and within that is like UX, UI, but we also have it, like if you were to look at our competencies on our site, we also have strategy and service design. So okay. strategy and service design take it kind of like in my from my personal perspective, kind of another step above, like another layer, you know, you're going out another kind of circle, if you will, um, to cover other aspects. And from my perspective, service design, it covers, 
it covers so much. It covers everything um, because you have to account for um, all the actors, if you will, um, if you're thinking about a particular project, if you're thinking about an end user for a product, but then also from an operational standpoint, who's affected from an operational standpoint if you're improving the product over here from a right. UX and a UI perspective? Um, and what is the infrastructure in place? Can we support that? Um, what does that mean from a brand perspective? Um, all those things to me fall under service design and strategy. Yeah, as a sociologist, I appreciate the systems orientation because when I first started teaching in the UX grad program, you know, looking at like, H, like an HCI kind of orientation where you were looking at individuals using things and mm -hmm. then seeing how well they can use them. And for me, looking at technology in the workplace, it was always about embeddedness in systems. Mm -hmm. That, you know, a person interacting with an interface in a lab is one thing. How they're using it in conjunction with institutional accountabilities, hierarchies, politics, expectations, et cetera, is an entirely different thing altogether, right? Yeah. And so this idea of service design being more of a complex systems approach to understanding the use of things in everyday life, right? you know, is, it's, a, it's an interesting iteration to go to. At the same time, I think when you can tell me with, you know, with your clients, how do you handle the overwhelming potential complexity of it? Because when you start expanding the experience Universe. ecosystem, <laughs> people are like, oh my God, you know, how, what do we yeah. do about that? How do we handle it? Yeah. So, I mean, it typically honestly comes down to what are the goals and objectives of the project, right? And what are we trying to do here? And so looking at like who's affected and how much and um, as long as we're focusing on the goals and the objectives, we can usually like go out a certain level, right? Gotcha. We might be able to come out another level and be like, we don't have enough information here. You might want to do a little bit more research. But as far right. as this, this project is concerned and the objectives around this, like we're able to answer these layers. I mean, because usually a lot of times with our clients, what's becoming common is, is people want either a journey map or a service blueprint to come out of the research in some respects for some of our work. And that means that it's going to have the members actions or the end users actions it's going to have right. their thoughts and feelings it's going to have like are there any influencers right so if we're talking about healthcare will that be um your physician or will it be you know somebody else within that ecosystem gotcha. that would make sense right and as you're going down the line you might be thinking of okay what are the systems and processes in place that affect what's happening to the member up here um, how deep are we going to go in there to solve this problem based on our goals and objectives, if that's helpful. So right. it, it sort of helps reel it in a little bit. And sometimes it can be complicated and you just have to ha keep having those conversations about you realigning and saying, okay, what, what we said was important up here earlier in the process, it's still important now, right? Because right. we just want to make sure that as we're moving along, we're all kind of on the same page and not going down a rabbit hole. Do you, do you find, um, I think this is, this is super fascinating and, and thinking about because we're managing complexity in, in this way, do you find that when uh, you are scoping projects with clients in this case, is, is there this, a lot of kind of negotiation back and forth in this case, and this, this notion of realignment too, in terms of kind of, do you, do you, I mean, as much as you can tell us, I guess, <laughs> like, are there, are there like kind of oftentimes levels of built-in check-ins, like milestones, like, let's see where we're at. We did the research and now let's, let's kind of do an initial findings check-in, see what we've got. And then, you know, a, a pre-show with the client and then like, then let's align and see where we're at and then kind of do more digging or like, how does that process work in terms of like, is the scope set and we're done or is it kind of a little bit yeah. evolved? Yeah. Um, I would say it depends. Um, and, you know, the scope has to be written in a way that the customer feels good about what they're buying, mm. right? right? So most people don't feel comfortable being like, here's a really loose thing <laughs> that you may or may not get for X amount of dollars. Right. So typically it has to be sort of, you know, fairly structured, obviously, for obvious reasons. But where there's flexibility is... Um, for the team that's working on it, in my experience, when I've worked on things, to be able to reach a point and say, okay, we reached this point, we know you want to do, you know, research here, um, does this still align, and, and figuring out if you need to go in that direction. I just finished a project where um, we had done some research, and we had done some um, kind of alignment workshops internally with the client. And we wanted to go out and uh, initially wanted to do like a concept evaluation on 
a product per se, but there was a sort of change in direction where the client was like, you know what, I think we want just a little bit more research. We want to like mm-hmm. use that energy and time and space to just dive in a little bit more in this part of the research that we heard um, from the readout. So we kind of pivoted and we did that and the output was a little bit different. It was more, you know, the findings from that and, and figuring out more details Um but it it worked because the client got what they wanted and it was a level of flexibility that we had. Now, it doesn't work with everybody, right? But for the most part, um, the research is what the research is. And then typically once that's done, we can figure out, okay, now that we know what we know, which direction is best to move into, knowing that we might have an itemized list of things that we might need to get through. Um, mm. But there might be flexibility between those itemized lists mm. that if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too bad people don't like, um, you know, proposals that are like, we're just going to hang out. Yeah. For how long? <laughs> I don't know. Until we find know, stuff. Six what months. kind of stuff are you going to find? I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be exploratory, man. We're just going to kind of hang gonna... out, check things out for a while, see what happens. I actually had some friends who used to be at the Palo Alto Research Center um, doing, you know, where they had space to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it was very interesting to see what they were able to find out. Right. Because as ethnographers, it's often very exploratory. And I think, you know, looking at some of the mad power material where you're positioning ethnography at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus at the very yeah. end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the importance of the very beginning, because you're you're looking for it's what I tell my students to have an ethnographic awareness, right? Yes. You're looking for the things you need to look for. However, if you only look for those things, that's all you're going to find. Yes. And you're going to lose the power of the yes. approach, not yes. just the method, but the orientation to discovery by looking for that which is available, but often remains unseen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can't really, really, you know, have that tunnel vision because uh, otherwise you're not going to ultimately deliver full value for the client. Right. And sometimes we find that if people don't have experience with qualitative research, like say prospective clients, or we often have to like, guide them into that, uh, for lack of a better word, squishiness, where it's like, we have to allow the research to tell us what (laughs) we have to let it just kind of bubble up and see what happens. Like, obviously we want to ask, we know what the goals are of the research and we have our moderator's guide and we have that ready. But I mean, you can like over-design research to death and get exactly what you want, but right. you you really want to be able to like let that information bubble up and then and then from there figure out, you know, otherwise you would be doing a survey. So <laughs> it's right. just thinking about it from that perspective. I have uh, some very good friends who do surveys. Some of my best friends are survey researchers. I wouldn't want them to marry my daughter or anything <laughs> like that as survey researchers. But it's, you know, it's, 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 I just had a conversation with someone today about you know, outcomes measurement. And I said, yeah, we can do a survey, but do you actually want to find out what's going on or do you want mm-hmm. a result? Mm-hmm. You know, I can give you a result if that's what you want. And sometimes yeah. that, that's a very you know, laudable, worthwhile goal is getting a result. Yeah. Are you willing, and this I think goes back to some of your change elements and the strategy, does an organization have the courage to find out? Yes. And not every organization or leader does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we find is, is companies have a lot of data, but they don't always, they're not sure how to use it exactly. Or, you know, you can slice it and dice it in so many different ways um, that, you know, people get a little bit paralyzed by indecision of like, what do I do with this? And so that's where a lot of the qualitative research comes in. Cause now you can kind of find a little bit, you can get insightful information about the why and like really dig into that more. Um, so that's, that's what I find valuable and try to like bring in to clients as we speak to them. Do you find that, um, you know, we we're, we've been in big data land for a while now, um, but you know, there, there is obviously like the, the, the infatuation and love with numbers because they help us. They feel like we can make concrete decisions based on them. Right. And a lot of businesses yeah. decisions are based on this, but yeah. to your point, you know, the qualitative gives us the why often behind the, the what in this, you know, or the how. Yeah. And so even, even, you know, thinking about, you know, on Mad Pow, on your website, you have kind of the double diamond experience innovation model. Yeah. And so, and so it didn't escape Gary and I's eye that, that foundational ethnographic research is right at the beginning there. Um, yeah. As, as a, as a interesting like framework to think about how might we kick off projects in, in this case too. And so there is this interesting back and forth in terms of, do you, do you find that like when you're, when you're designing strategies and thinking through strategies with clients, um, 
you know, if somebody is, is overly number, number heavy or they're, they're mm-hmm. like big data is their thing. Like, do you find it's, it's ever a, a, a challenge or is it, is never too difficult to kind of say, we have to do this kind of early on qualitative research to help see what's actually happening in these spaces? Well, typically people do hire us because of the qualitative, because they mm-hmm. want access to that qualitative research. So there isn't always, you know, with those initial stakeholders that hire us, th- that barrier. It, if anything, sometimes it may be like when we're presenting to stakeholders beyond them, <laughs> you know, right. beyond that core team that we're working with, where people might be hesitant or then they try to like really turn it into numbers, right? And you're like, that's not the point of what we're doing here. It's just to, right. it's to get it's to get sentiment, it's to get people's feelings and thoughts around this so you can better improve your product or whatever it happens to be. So there's definitely there's definitely part of that. Um, but it feels in my experience, it has been a little bit more about like once that pres- once that presentation is presented to that larger group, you're you're always gonna have some people who are a little bit more skeptical or are focused a little bit more on the data piece than the qualitative part of it. Mm. Yeah, no, that resonates too. I, I often find that in, in my own line of work too, that um, I'm not going to poo-poo any particular groups, but um, marketing often has one of the hardest times of, of dealing with the, uh, <laughs> with the why and the cultural and, and the, uh, the fuzziness of, of humans, because it's, it's, you know, we want to segment or, or, you know, put them into, into persona groups only. And so there's this interesting challenge that in terms of, um, you know, even, even I find when we're working with, with certain kinds of, uh, you know, certain groups of clients in this case, or like certain, certain area in a business to help like, you know, bring out and, and tell that story in a way that like that the, the cultural fuzziness is, is actually part of this. Right. And that actually makes, yeah. that can make any kind of marketing or communication or strategy or vision, all the, all the richer, because there is a bit of nuance in there and that, you know, finding the right kind of story to tell that hits that nuance, you know, will take you much further than, than just kind of getting a broad generalized persona as it were. So, um, yeah. so I empathize with the challenge in that, in that space. <laughs> yeah, definitely understand that for sure. Um, <laughs> One of the things I was looking at your materials, and I've thought about this with my UX students, is like in customer experience, one of the or even patient experience, one of the foundational features is organizational change, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. we need to make everybody think of the voice of the customer, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they're customer facing or not. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, and I could be wrong. I don't know if UX right now has the has that kind of orientation or has it slipped into this a b testing model of how do we maximize you know customer retention whether they want to be retained or not how do we increase mm-hmm. profit whether you know how do we use psychological uh, mm-hmm. techniques or approaches to get them to buy more mm-hmm. right and, yeah. I, and i've read a few things about that I actually had had a chance to have don norman come to my grad class last spring in which he talked about that you know, this kind of tension between what UX was, you know, around making lives of the user easier, yeah, almost like a humanitarian mission yeah. to now being like, well, we, you know, our job is to retain people, not change the outlook of the company for better design, but try to support the company's mission of increased profitability. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean, but I feel like that, that tension may has has been there since the beginning of time almost like this tension of like (laughs) okay well you know we need to improve you know uh, the customer's experience there is like this profit part of that we need to always be considering so I think you know my approach has been in you know experience that I had recently in working on a client that was from my perspective not everybody was necessarily thinking from the customer's point of view, right? right. It, it was more, and then this feeling of like some people who weren't dealing with customers directly feeling like, oh, well, my job doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like I don't interact with face right. to face. I'm not, it's not like I'm customer service or anything, but you know, it does matter. So I guess, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I definitely, I don't know that it's, it's become a trend recently that it's like something new versus it's, it's a tension that's always been there depending on a given organization Mm -hmm. and how they kind of view their, their path and their mission in life and and how they want to approach that. Um, Do you find organizations in these projects want to change or do they just want to improve some aspect or create a new product? And 
are they different things? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have a preferential preferred answer here, but I just get curious. You know, I've found mm-hmm. a lot of students coming to my classes who are like, you know, I mean, I was in UX. Now they're asking me to be, to do change management. And I have no idea why. Right? I have no <laughs> idea what they're talking about right now. I got to be in charge of change management. I was a UX professional. You know, what, what do I do? Right. And so it seems like the change management part of experience design mm-hmm. is being brought to the forefront even if companies don't want to change, but they feel like they need to talk about it because everyone else is talking about it. Got it. Got it. Um, I don't know. I mean, that seems like a leap to say, like, I, you know, I was doing UX. Now they want me to do change management. Yeah. And that's you what know, the from- too. They're like, what? <laughs> um, I mean, from our perspective, you know, from a MadPal perspective, that's what we consider organizational design or transformation design. Okay. Um, cool. And then looking at an organization and saying, okay, in order for you to make these changes to kind of, um, you know, instill design thinking into your organization, focus on human-centered design, you you need to kind of reorganize yourself or or you need to change things. Um, I think there's a balance always when you're dealing with any for-profit organization that um, there has to be a balance of like, there is a a for-profit aspect that can't be ignored, but the product also has to be improved. So it's just striking that balance and, and, and figuring out what is that sort of sweet spot to hit so that you're, you're able to balance both. It's tricky, isn't it? Man, it sounds like it's hard. I mean, you know, being in the room with, with these organizations, these leaders being like, well, you know, you want to, here's your opportunity to transform and change. Here's how we found you guys pathway to do it. We have these exciting ideas. Um, but it's risky. One of the things I, I, you know, we talk about qualitative, quantitative work. One of the things I think is attractive about quantitative is that a decision does not have to be made. A decision mm-hmm. is made for people and therefore they're not accountable for if it doesn't work out. Right. And I, as I often say, the reason why they teach leadership in MBA programs is because they're usually not right. And being a leader can be very scary because if it doesn't work out, if you make the wrong decision, it, you know, there's, there's going to be professional organizational repercussions. People's lives are impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, though, that a good leader is never making decisions completely alone, right? You would mm-hmm. think that you would have like a good set of advisors, so to speak. Like you are, <laughs> you are at the end of the day, like, yes, the buck stops with you. I totally get that. Um, so, yeah, so I can understand, like, I'm just trying to empathize, empathize sure. with certain people that I think of, like you are, you know, standing alone at, at some points and that I'm sure that can feel very lonely in trying to make those decisions. But um but I think a true leader recognizes that they don't know everything. <laughs> That's how I mm-hmm. think of it anyway, right? You're, you're not there to know everything, but you're there to, um, if you don't know, figure it out, but also have people around you that are able to fill in those gaps and help you understand, right? And, and figure out a way forward and um, people that you trust and can advise you as you move forward, whether those, ment- those are mentors or those are people that are supporting you, um, within your team or an organization. Um, do you find yourself having to, to, to do that? I mean, as an organization where you're coming in to do a particular thing, but because of the kind of data you're collecting, the kind of insights you're generating, you're also industry-wide view, right? Um, that you work in healthcare or, mm-hmm. or education or, you know, other areas of work that you have a broader overview. Do you find that you have, there's opportunities to small C coach, um, you know, clients in terms of helping them along that decision-making journey to get to a point where they're calling shots that might be risky, but possibly truly transformational. Um, I don't know that I have personally, you know, like I said, we do have a transformation practice. So I feel like that team might, okay. you know, like right. we have situations where they're mm-hmm. helping people along in that capacity. Um, the only thing that I can feel, you know, related to me is more when we're working with an organization where you have to educate them along the way in terms of the process, our process, sure. or if they haven't gone through um, a strategy project or engagement. So they're trying to understand, like, what are we doing? What is a code design session? Why are we doing it? You know, why does it matter? It's like they they might have some of those um words in their vocabulary and their list of glossary, but they're not fully, you know, understanding how it will, you know, get executed. So in that capacity, um, there is a little bit of like kind of helping along the way from that perspective. Gotcha. I think one of the, the things that is 
striking me about this this conversation in in like coming out of what we see in in terms of uh, how Mad Power presents itself too is there's 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 this large focus also on social impact of the kind of work mm-hmm. that you do and and um, you know it's spoken about also as kind of purpose driven design which I think is really interesting in in like conversation with this idea around leadership and helping people along but I'm curious too just to to think about this a little bit with you in terms of uh, you know what is what does this role look like to you? Like kind of in your work, um, we don't often hear about purpose driven design. As crazy as that might sound to say, we don't hear that very often. But yeah. <laughs> it's refreshing for one. But what does that what does that look like um, in in your experience in that Mad Pow? Because um, I think this is something that that is um, sorely needed. You know, in in mm. the world as as we think about what design could be. And I think and I, and I hear echoes like the flip side of this is kind of Gary's question before in terms of you know the the slight dangers of dark patterns in UX designer, right? Or like, are we like actually helping people do something or, yes. or getting them to, to click more on something? So um, right. yeah, I'm curious in your perspective in this and like how, how does purpose-driven frame what design means in your, in your space? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it can mean lots of, can you hear my cat in the background? I'm Absolutely. really sorry. No, not at all. Oh, no. <laughs> no, what, what cat? Not, not, is it okay? It's impressive. <laughs> no, he's totally fine. <laughs> he's very, he's very loud. What does your cat think about that question? Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. No, that. <laughs> he was like, "What is purpose-driven design?" Hmm. Um, yeah. So I think it means different things for different people, but I think for us, especially because we work a lot in the healthcare space and the finance space as well, is sort of like we think of ourselves, and I can speak for myself this way, is like, how can we help people in our little corner of the world, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that, you know, if it's the UX world or the strategy world, um, and thinking about how we solve problems. So as we work with health insurance companies, at the end of the day, what I think about is that person at the other right. end, right? The human, the member who's using the health insurance, who's having the issue and what is the problem and why can't they get what they need? And it's sort of getting down to like that human aspect of, of how can we help that end user and really focusing in on that, right? So one of the things that I find that, you know, we sometimes have to remind clients is like, okay, I get that, but what about the user? We really have to focus on this. This is what we heard from the research. This is what we heard mattered to them. So we really want to bring that along. And it's something that we focus on a lot and understanding kind of the why it matters to that person and trying to bring that throughout the process as we're working on it. Um, It helps create a thread, but it also keeps everybody on kind of, you know, a continuity of understanding um, as we move forward. it's more looking at that. Um, but I think, you know, for other people, I don't know. I mean, I think about, I have a coworker who used to be a nurse and then she went into service design and now she works for us. So it's like, it's cool to have somebody with that perspective of understanding healthcare system and kind of um, considering design from a whole different angle. Um, so um, like I said, I think it means different things for different people, but. Hmm. It's, it's nice too, because it seems that it's, you know, in, a, an evolution of user-centered design is, is a principle or a human-centered design too, in terms of helping that, uh, the, I mean, I guess on one level that that's, is, that is what it is, um, you know, mm-hmm. on one perspective, but at the same time, I think that it's, you know, and I like what you're articulating here that it, it seems that it's big enough to mean multiple things or different kinds of things to different people, but helps us again, stay on, and basically what is that, what does that change work look like and, and how, and who are we affecting with it? And so I think that's something that, that, I mean, it's, it's, refreshing, you know, because it's, it's fundamentally important, I think, you know, in terms of doing any kind of change or design work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's who's it for and what is it going to mean to them? And, and, you know, why is it a problem in the first place? And are we solving the right problem? Like, right. You know, the, yeah. And are we creating another problem by solving <laughs> right. this problem? Like, just like <laughs> thinking about like, what are the, what is the effect of that? And you're like, okay, are we looking at everything in the right place in the right way? Mm-hmm. I think it, yeah, speaks, yeah. it speaks to this like humanitarian or ethical undercurrent of all this work, right? Because it, you know, one of the things it says on the MapHow website is, you know, changing behaviors, you know, and there, so there is this obligation Mm -hmm. to try to be, to try to get it right as much as possible, to try to understand and represent the people for whom we're speaking. Also, as you said, have empathy for the people in the organization and Mm -hmm. their constraints. As I tell Mm -hmm. my students, managers are people too, and they have (laughs) their own considerations and their own pressures and their own issues. And, you know, everyone's kind of coming at this moment from these multiple different worlds. And as ethnographer, one of the things we're tasked with is 
understanding and not necessarily privileging one against the other, Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. you know, often relating back what it is Mm -hmm. we're finding and helping to make sense of what all of it means. So that, you know, as I talk about turning complexity into actions, we can turn this, all of this stuff Mm -hmm. into some kind of opportunities to implement ideas to make things better. Yes. Yeah. And always just taking a step back and looking at things holistically and, and like you mentioned earlier, just looking from like a, a systemic approach and being like, what, who is affected and what are the systems being affected and how, you know, are we solving this and um, what, what kind of trickle down effects are there, if any, um, that kind of right. thing. And then weighing, weighing those risks, right. Is like the benefits of this outweigh any risks over here. <laughs> it, it, it ends up being like what, you know, what ends up being right for that particular circumstance. Hmm. And, and I think that, I mean, that's, I think about the power and the challenge of design in this case too, in terms of like, how do we weigh those, those, you know, being aware of potentially un- unintended consequences, how do we help push forward the intended consequences yes. um, and get ourselves in, into that right space. So, um, you know, I, I think kind of just as, as one, maybe kind of wrap up question in this idea, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious just to get a sense of, you know, what do you, as we're moving into slowly or quickly into 2022, you know, we're moving <laughs> into a brave new world. And, and so, yeah, you know, what do you, <laughs> um, we might need some we, Soma. I don't know. Means we need to be brave in this new world. Yeah, just, uh, brave in this new world. Every day I wake up and I'm just like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So that, that's the end of it. Yeah. There, there's no real question there. We're just, we're just heading into it right now. But, um, you know what, I, I guess, you know, if, if there is something that comes to mind in terms of like, what, what might we be hopeful for going forward in terms of like, what can, what can design help us do to make, um, to kind of, you know, brave, pick any of the challenges that we have coming up in the next, in the next year. Um, you know, what, what's something that you're most hopeful, for, I guess, or like that you've seen, I mean, through your work anyway, it could be an example of, um, something that, that feels like we're moving in a, in an okay direction or that we can help kind of nudge in the right way. Nudge in the right way. Hmm, that is a very big question. It's a big question. Trying to think about it. What's your cat think about it? I know. What does he think about it? (laughs) I should ask him. (laughs) Right. Um, I I I guess the one thing that I think of, and I don't. It's it's um. I don't know if it's going to answer your question, but for me, it feels like there's a lot in service design and design and it, it. the way that we, it's a framework, right? Of a way to solve problems. And you have tools that are part of that framework to solve problems. And I feel like, why can't we use those to solve some bigger problems? Mm, (laughs) You know, um, so, you know, if we're thinking about, uh, you know, right now with COVID and not a lot of people taking their vaccination or whatever, however you feel about that, I don't know. (laughs) But um, being able to find ways to kind of um, improve situations like that, or when you think about a lot of social justice issues that are happening, it's like, how can we use this idea of collaboration, co-designing to open up the floodgates of conversation and bring people Mm. to the table that would normally not speak to each other, but are speaking to each other because we're using that framework and those tools. How can we use those? I guess that is more my idealistic answer of can we use those, that framework and those tools to, to have those conversations? Because we do that every day on like, you know, when you think about working for, you know, our different customers and clients, not everybody's agreeing. And so you, you you become that facilitator, right. Of of the conversation of trying to kind of guide people through a process. And so how can we do that too, for, for other things that are also as good? Lots of post-it notes. Lots of post-it notes. Lots of post-it notes. We need more post-it notes. More post-it notes. I often often think that design thinking is just a a plot and a scheme by 3M. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that's a sociologist in me just to kind of increase market share of post-it notes. Nice. nice. That's a good move. But cynical. <laughs> I own it. I, I, yeah. you know, I, I'm guilty of that, but nice. I, I do, you know, it's, it is interesting. And I think the students are asking for that, honestly, that, you know, at least the students, not the post-it notes, but the, the, the design yeah. for change. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're like, I, I want to make a difference. How can I use this to make a difference? It feels like yeah. I should be doing that, whether it's design justice or participatory yeah. design or inclusivity mm-hmm. in design, all these words, all these things all going yeah. after the same end, which is mm-hmm. to close that social distance by increasing conversation and resulting in, creating some opportunities for transformative lasting change. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Well, Lainey, thank you so much for joining us. This has been, yeah, been great you. to talk with you. Um, awesome to hear and share your stories. And so we are excited to share this with listeners. So um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you guys as well. And uh, have a great evening. We want to thank Eleni Stathoulis, Principal of Design at MadPow, for chatting with us about experience design, bringing people into the design process, and doing good through design. Check out Eleni on LinkedIn and MadPow and their website. We'll have these links in our show notes, which we always enjoy sharing with you. And, you know, hop in the conversation with us. Let us know how you have made a difference through design. You know, what are some of your biggest design wins? What are the impacts that you've made, both large and small, in folks' lives? And how do you bring your findings to life in ways that help drive impact? Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign or join us for conversation on our LinkedIn page. And as always, thanks for your continued support for the podcast. We were very excited to see that we were number two in Lebanon. So everybody right. in Lebanon. Thanks for listening. Ahlain, ahlain, Welcome. Ahlam wa to the podcast. Make sure you keep your contributions, your ideas, and your financial support coming. No matter what part of the world you're in, we always like to hear from you. And we look forward to your feedback. You can always make a contribution to support the cause of the podcast through going to our website where you can buy us a coffee at experiencexdesign.com. We appreciate your patronage in helping us deliver all of this great content to every corner of the world. And if you would like to sponsor an EXD episode, please sure to send us a message and we can chat about it. And if you have any other ideas for the show, any other thoughts about future episodes or any other thoughts about past episodes, make sure to shoot us an email at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And as always, you can subscribe to the podcast at our website and join our LinkedIn page to be part of the conversation. So with that, be safe, be happy, be healthy, be well. And we will see you next time on Experience by Design.